Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just had a really good time and a really interesting time talking with Minsu Kong about his book, Sublime Dreams of Living Machines, The Automaton in the European Imagination, that was published with Harvard University Press in 2011. Now, this is a really interesting book to read, to think about, to think with, and to talk about for a number of different reasons. First, it's a really interesting case study of just an inherently fascinating problem, right? The book is a historical study of the automaton as an object, both conceptual and actual, in the history of um, what's variously termed the European or the Western imagination. So it's just full of these sometimes really funny, really disturbing, shocking, always really interesting examples of the emergence of something we might call the automaton in various times and places. It's also an attempt to bring together, and I think a very successful attempt to bring together, these very different ways of talking and thinking about the automaton in history. So on the one hand, the automaton is something that we might consider to be this kind of trans-historical, cognitive, perennial concept within the imagination of a culture, and at the same time, an attempt to really root emergences of um, the automaton in very particular contexts and very specific times and places. So it's really interesting to think about um, the ways that the historian can balance these two seemingly very different kinds of goals. It's also really interesting to talk with um, Kang about it because he, as a practitioner, writes both history and fiction. So we had, I think, a really interesting conversation about the particular demands and ways of negotiating those two kinds of writing in the same person. It was really interesting for me, and I hope you find it um, to be interesting too, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, Minsu. Hello. We're here today to talk with Minsu Kang about his really great new book, his recent book, Sublime Dreams of Living Machines, The Automaton in the European Imagination. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Minsu, and thanks so much for making the time to talk with us today. I really appreciate you having me. Oh, it's my pleasure, and it's, it was absolutely a pleasure to read the book as well. Mm-hmm. So, Minsu, Thank you. Can you start us off by saying just a little bit about yourself and your background? What brought you to the field of um, science and literature and and to this this topic in particular? Yes. um, Well, um, during my mid-career as a graduate student um, uh, dealing with European history at UCLA, um, I I thought I'd gone to graduate school to become a biographer. And um, I'm particularly interested in the era of Enlightenment, so I was uh, training to become an Enlightenment historian. And uh, I was looking at uh, the lives of uh, especially the most radical philosophers uh, in in, uh, Paris at at the time. And a strange thing happened, a completely uh, accidental um, uh, divergence from my original topic. Um, I kept on coming coming across the name of Jacques de Vaucanson um, in the writings of the people of that time period. And 
I had never heard of this guy before, um, but what was strange was that everybody was saying that this was one of the greatest geniuses of uh, the period. Um, Voltaire uh, kept on writing letters to Frederick the Great saying that this is the guy you should hire, this is the guy you should get. Um, Diderot uh, in his uh, uh, um, writings uh, mentions him a number of times, and and obviously I had to look into this. I mean, I you know uh, since everybody was uh, um, you know talking about in a highly laudatory manner, so. Uh, I found out that he was an engineer um, and uh, a, a mechanician, but um, mechanician. But the thing that he was most famous for was that he invented three automata, um, two musical figures. Uh, one was a flute player, and the other was a drum player. Um, and the third was the most famous of them all, the so-called defecating duck. Um, it's a little duck uh, that could flap its wing- wings, move around, and you put food in its mouth, and a couple of minutes later, stuff came out at the other end. And uh, all of Paris just went crazy over this. They could not get enough of this. People stood around in lines uh, around the building to get a um, uh, um, to get a, a view of this. And uh, um, and as a result, I it just and I, and I also found out that um, you know after the success of the Vaucanson Automata, um, it set off a veritable automaton craze um, that lasted throughout the rest of the Enlightenment period. And one after another, you know, one more sophisticated after another uh, automaton kept on coming out. Um, and as it always happens with a, uh, when a historian just, you know, goes off his field, there's a this mystery to be solved. What was that about? What what was the automaton thing? Um, and uh, uh, fortuitously, this opened up the, this immense era of uh, immense uh, obsession with me where... Um, you know, I was I was looking into this, and I thought I sort of got a handle on uh, the uh, Enlightenment uh, obsession with automata. Um, and then I figured, you know, in order for me to properly explain this, I have to, you know, uh, give the context for the previous period, in the 17th century and the Renaissance and so on. And I ended up doing something that all of my advisors uh, advised me strongly, strongly not to do, which is write a very general book. <laughs> Um, and uh, this is a no-no, and now uh, we live in an area of extreme specialization. But I just—it's this almost this um, mania that I—I uh, I think uh, I must have gotten infected from the automaton craze of the 18th century. Uh, took me over, and I had to find out virtually everything. And so, um, you know, I narrowed down my topic for my book, and it goes—it uh, deals with a very narrow period from the uh, time of the ancient Greeks to the 1930s. <laughs> very narrow. Yeah, I—I I, I, I just couldn't go beyond that. I just had to stop myself. Um, and it's a, it's a comprehensive exploration of what the self-moving machine, which is, you know, uh, how the word automaton is defined by, uh, what it has meant for different periods uh, in European history. Um, so, uh, you know, to answer your question, I, I just stumbled upon this by complete accident, but very quickly, within a couple of months, I, I knew that this was something that I, I was going to have to deal with, and uh, Although I wrote this, you know, um, you know, big general book on it, I know that there's at least a couple more automaton books. In it's so funny just listening to you talk about the um, kind of what inspired you to go in this direction. It's it's isn't that the way it works with all of us? Um, at least all of us historians, we sort of come up with this question: topic colon What's up with that? And that yes, basically is what absolutely. Gets, it's so true. Um, and, so, you, and you also find that like the original topic that you started about, it's actually not very interesting. And then this this side thing that that you were dealing with is that oh, that's the real story. That's what I should deal with. Right. It's one of the great things about this business. Actually, yes, absolutely. And, and talking about stories, um, actually, this is something that 
um, is very important to the book. One of the most powerful themes, at least for from the perspective of this reader, that emerges from the book is the relationship between stories and literature and stories and history, or rather literature and history in understanding the genesis of the automaton in particular, but also more broadly. Now, if I'm not mistaken, you also spend some time writing fiction. Is that right? Yes. Um. Now, that's because, um, and as we'll, t- we'll talk about in the course of um, our discussion of this really evocative and very, very rich book, um, fiction winds up being, um, and fantasy fiction in particular, winds up being a really important um, case study for some of what you talk about in the book. Can you talk a little bit about, um, and I want to ask you about this in particular, because I think this is this is especially fascinating to, um, to try to sort of get a sense of how your work in these different genres might inform each other. So can you talk, um, if you don't mind, for us a little bit about your work in fiction and your work in history? How did those two kinds of work that you do inform each other? What kind of fiction are you drawn to writing and so on and so forth? So anything in that area that you'd like to share with us, I think would be really great. Oh, yes. Um, you know, I, I really can't imagine uh, my life uh, just as a historian, as a fiction writer. I mean, the two very complement each other very well. Um, and in my own work, as a, in my work as just as a historian, um, the use of literature for the study of history is very, very important to me. It's something that I, I think about a lot, and I, it's, it's a, um, and I teach a number of courses on it. Um, and now the cliche about how one can use sort of the uh, right um, fiction, uh, you know, especially really great fiction from a particular period as sort of window onto the past. Um, you know, that's uh, you know that that's something that uh, you know uh, that a lot of people uh, think about, and as a result, a lot of historians do use fiction from the period that they are uh, teaching. Um, but I'm also aware that uh, rather than as a simple window, um, you have to be aware that the ingrained prejudices and biases of the time period so that, you know, I, so I teach my students to be, have a much more sophisticated view of it. Don't take this as, you know, an objective view. Just take this as a sort of distillation of a person from living in the period. Now, what I really love uh, about fantastic fiction, um, you know, things that could be categorized in the modern genre titles of, you know, uh, say horror, science fiction, and fantasy, and so on, is that of all the different types of fictional writings, uh, uh, fictional, uh, the fantastic fiction from any given era is a sort of repository of the most extreme fantasies that that period has produced. And as a result, um, you know, you can you can get sort of the uh, uh, get an idea of what were some of the you know greatest fears and the highest hopes that uh, the people of that era held. Um, and in the case of uh, the study of automaton, as you can imagine, it was absolutely essential because um, you know I'm, I'm you know as you probably got the sense I'm really one of the areas in which I find the automaton very very fascinating that it flips very quickly from. You know, just absolute delight and just fascination, and you know the uh, the self-moving machinery is sort of the uh, the, the greatest uh, you know uh, possible accomplishment of, of human ingenuity. But then it flips, and it's like there's all the stories about robots coming alive to you know uh, rebel against their masters and so on, right? Um, and and you know that that thing that I'm really fascinated with the, the way in which human beings would look at an automaton and go. 
Oh, you know, what a, what a pretty little machine. You know, how fascinating. They go, oh, my God, automaton, it's going to kill, kill us all. Right? <laughs> um, and you see that in, in, uh, in, a, in a virtually every period, um, even in Hollywood movies today. Um, think of all the, you know, uh, ones that feature really, you know, nice, um, beautiful, ingenious automaton versus, you know, the Terminator, right? Um, now, um, in, in terms of your earlier question, um, yeah, I, um, um, I find myself... Um, you know, I, one of the things I love history is that um, I do have to prove everything. You know, I can't just say whatever I, my, my intuition says about the past. Um, and I, I like the really the, the rigor of it, the, the looking for evidence um, and trying to get as much sophisticated um, handle on the evidence and, uh, and drawing meaning out of it. Um, but there's a part of me, uh, that's the fiction part of me, that wants to be liberated from it and just tell stories, um, apart from not only the constraints of evidence, but from the constraints of maybe laws of physics. Um, and as a result, uh, you know, I, after I've done a lot of work on history, I find myself fleeing to fiction, you know, to liberate my imagination. And a lot of it comes from, a lot of it comes from uh, things I wanted to say as a historian, but I couldn't because there's just not enough evidence. Um, ideas and stories and possible interpretations that occur to me, but um, you know, but w as a historian, you have to work within uh, certain parameters of plausibility and you know, and, and evidence and so on. So I, I run to fiction in order to write this fiction, and um, and so um, in, in my short story collection, which is called uh, "Of Tales and Enigmas." Um, if, when people read those short stories, uh, they'll see very clearly that this is a historian uh, who have fled to fiction <laughs> because there's all these kind of possibilities that I deal with, um, you know, uh, you know, sort of alternate history, um, you know, ideas and, you know, uh, creating um, uh, uh, the history of, you know, a non-existent uh, land and so on. Um, and what's also interesting to me that um, if once I've worked on fiction for a long time, I find myself yearning to go back to the certainty of historical scholarship that uh, to a certain extent just dealing with fiction is almost too free and too uh, you know structureless and uh, and as a result I find myself wanting to go back to the archives and go through the old books and triangulate evidence and you know and skepticism and so on and uh, it is so to me it's a great joy for me to be taking uh, a break from either and be going back and forth and as you can imagine uh, this project on the history of automata has presented me with a lot of story ideas that I could pursue through fiction. I can imagine, and I can't wait to read some more of them, actually, afterwards. So, Anna, one final thing I want to ask you about this, because this is so interesting, and so and this is kind of, you know, selfish, because I am very interested in um, issues of craft, but I know a lot of our listeners are, too, so not super selfish. Right. On a practical note, it sounds like um, you're describing your writing process as going from um, a period for focusing on fiction to a period focusing on history and vice versa. Do you alternate like that, or do you kind of do you find yourself working on um, fiction writing and history writing at the same time, sometimes even in the same day? And so that's one thing. And, and second, um, what is your writing schedule like? Sort of, how do you balance the demands of these different kinds of uh, genres on on your own time? Mm -hmm. uh, I uh, absolutely do not mix the two. <laughs> Um, and so I go through like, uh, you know, a year or, you know, many months where I only do history and then I switch and I only do fiction. Um, and that works very well for me because um, 
I think um, I, you know I don't necessarily think that this this is uh, for everybody, but um, I think I really do need to get into a certain mindset to be um, you know to be doing history versus doing fiction, um, and it, that also has to do with uh, following the rigors of the historical historian's craft versus the rigors of uh, of, of the literary craft, um, and uh, I I think I'll find it a little bit too confusing for me to go back and forth and frankly um, because I'm used to doing that I'm used to working intensively on history for a while then working intensely on uh, on fiction um, I uh, I can't imagine mixing the two I, I think I would find myself uh, completely lost and you know uh, and the two spilling over uh, each other in a, two activities spilling over into uh, each other in a, in a not, not very positive way um, and so uh, so yeah uh, and also as I said it helps when you know you work on history for so long that you kind of get sick of it so when you pick up <laughs> fiction it, it's so refreshing it's so wonderful it's so great that I don't have to check my footnotes every other minute right? and then, then uh, you know and they keep thinking about oh what would other people in my field say about this can I you know and I you know, and, and so on um but then I, you know, I walk on fiction for a while, and once again, I'm like, uh, you know, this is great, but um, this is at some point I, I need something concrete. I, I need I need to you know uh, learn something about the world I live in, um, and so on. So um, it's it's a great motivation, uh, you know, to go back and forth. Um, well, in terms of my writing, um, I. Uh, <laughs> um, John Updike once said that among all writers, there are those who write in the morning and there's those who write at night. And uh, uh, what's really interesting, he said the qualities of their writing is very different. Um, and uh, he said that, um, you know, the people who write in the morning, uh, they tend to have, um, you know, th- these are people like, uh, you know, Updike uh, himself, uh, people like Nabokov and uh um, and um, and they he, he describes how their, their writing is so much more uh, the sentence structure is so much more clearer the overall stru- uh, structure of the writing is clearer and it just the clarity is what really um, it comes through among great writers who write in the mornings uh, writers who write in the evenings uh, people like Dostoevsky they're, they're clumsy their sentences may not be as clear and they may be clumsy but they have this immediacy uh, that that really shines forth that you rarely get with the morning writers. Um, and the problem is that for so many years I've been trying to turn myself into a morning writer, <laughs> and I have failed at every turn. I I just I just can't get going, and it's uh and uh, you know and I you know and it's it's you know one of the reasons that I'm just not a morning person. I'm really groggy for several hours after I wake up, but. I, you know, I, I so admired that the kind of the clarity of the uh, the of the morning writers, but I, I, I find myself at my most productive um, after I finish watching uh, you know the uh, the Daily Show and Colbert Report. Uh-huh. I start then, and then you know I, I'll, I may end at like three, four, five in the morning. <laughs> I, I don't like this. I don't like it. I want to get up early in the morning and have a productive day and go to bed early. But I. There's something about it that I just can't change. <laughs> well, whatever you're doing, just keep doing it because clearly <laughs> it's working, at least from the perspective of your history. But but I completely understand. I mean, I tried to force myself into some kind of a writing schedule in the morning also for the past several months, and sometimes it involves just sitting down and you you know having nothing at all to say yeah. and just sort of starting groggily with your fingers. I am eating an English muffin now. <laughs> English muffin is brown. It's blah blah blah. I'm just kind of trying. To. So, yeah. 
<laughs> well, also, there's, there's less distractions in the evenings, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, especially after Colbert's report's over. There's nothing on TV to watch. <laughs> Depending on whether you have a cat or a uh, TV yeah. on iTunes, so these can complicate things. But that's another story for another day. <laughs> <laughs> so the book itself, um, The Sublime Dreams of Living Machines, this is a historical study of the automaton as a conceptual object. Um, so it explores two main themes, and you set these out at the beginning of the book. First is the nature of the automaton as an object and the source of its ability to arouse emotions in people, and not just any emotions, but powerful emotions and con- very conflicting emotions. And that conflict is going to be very important um, to, the, to the argument. Second is the consideration of humans as machines, and the, again, this am- conflict or ambivalence um, that that elicits. So as you show in the book, the automaton has been not only an important presence, but also a continuous presence in what you call the Western imagination, so in a very broad swathe of history. However, you're very clear about the importance here of situating the idea, this kind of idea that permeates um, on a cognitive level um, the imagination um, of history, but situating it very firmly in very specific historical contexts to show how it functioned in specific periods and also how that significance changed from period to period. So what I want to ask you about first as we get into um, the real meat of the book is to talk about navigating these two different um, aspects of the automaton's power, these aspects that you call um, the perennial and the contextual or something we might think of as kind of the cognitive, right, and the historical. Can you talk about um, that relationship for us and how that informs the way you approached um, the history of the automaton in this project? Right, um, I, you know that's you know that's that, I mean really captured the essence of what I was trying to the book, and uh, um, and that's that's been one of the uh, harder thing to um, uh, harder thing to explain because um, I you know I and also sense in the reviewers there there were also a lot of my reviewers was trying to wrap their minds around how the two aspects of it the the perennial versus the historical sort of interact. Um, well, I you know I wasn't trying to um, say something too. Um, theoretically profound um, but the perennial aspect has to do with the fact that you know I think there's a there's a sort of a, an essential reason why the automaton itself is essentially an interesting object um, and uh, uh, for people to ponder um, and uh, uh, and my basic idea is that uh, you know um, it's it has to do with the way human cognition works, how we tend to divide everything into categories, and um, and all phenomena that tend to just go from one category to another, flip you know, uh, flip from one to the other, uh, tend to cause uh, a series of um, uh, emotions like anxiety, sometimes fear, and sometimes even fascination. Um, and the automaton is a prime example of an object that you know it's it's obviously made of dead matter, but it pretends to be alive. Um, so it seems to go back and forth between the the realm of the living and the realm of the dead, the realm of the natural versus the uh, realm of the artificial, uh, realm of the animate versus inanimate, and so on. Um, and under right circumstances, under different circumstances, it can cause different sets of emotion. Um, now that's deliberately very, very abstract, and I, I and I made an argument uh, based on sort of my um, uh, cursory reading of psychology and um, uh, psychology and, and sociology. Um, 
because I, I did also want to really, really point out that just because that, that is at the really bottom why uh, automaton is such an essentially interesting thing, uh, that will tell us nothing about how specifically a medieval person regarded um, you know, the automaton or a person of the Enlightenment um, um, regarded or a, 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 of, um, a novelist or a filmmaker um, walking after you know um, he's been through the warfare of World War One and writing you know a fiction or a film about automata um, to them it's 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 tied in with the um, tied in with the, their, their specific historical experience and their specific cultural matrix out of their come from now I, I do argue that you know at the bottom of it you know th- there is a reason why all of them all of those people return to the automaton as such a fruitful symbol over and over and over again through century after century but that doesn't tell us very much, especially for a historian. That doesn't tell us really very much about why, say, for instance, uh, medieval people, when they regarded the self-moving object, kept them moving back and forth between, is this idolatry? Is this something evil that's being done here? Or is this, in fact, uh, you know, um, a, a legitimate use of uh, natural magic, a, a, a neutral form of magic? Um, and there were others who were looking to um, this as a kind of the the promise of the kind of um, uh, social and even moral improvement that could be made through the pursuit of the uh, mechanical arts. Um, So, uh, you know, my, so the thing that I want to do was first in the first chapter establish what I think, you know, um, what psychologists have to uh, tell us about uh, sort of this, what could be the perennial source of fascination for the automaton and then just take off from there and just say okay now let's leave the perennial and look at period by period um and it's all very different i mean it's uh i mean the what uh a uh, a renaissance person may may have found fascinating about a moving statue um something very different from what a uh somebody from living in the uh, during the industrial revolution in the second half of the 19th century uh, found fascinating about a, a moving machine um, and uh, it's 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 uh, it's, a, you know, it's a whole different array of emotions and uh, that comes from different experience um, in the same way that I think uh, the way the way we react when we go to see movies like Terminator uh, or movies like AI where there's a very benign robot um, it's. Uh, I mean, it has to be looked in terms of what was really, you know, what what was happening during uh, in uh, in America and elsewhere during the 1980s and 1990s when uh, uh, when these films were being uh, produced. <laughs> so this is. Um, so the, you're mentioning psychology is very interesting, and this really gets at um, the heart of one of the really interesting kinds of work that this first chapter is doing. It's very interdisciplinary, right? You're ranging across history, literature, aesthetics, anthropology, and psychology. Um, it's very, very uh, rich in terms of a transdisciplinary project. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you before we go into the context-specific um, uh, sort of capsule histories that you give us and, and these very um, rooted manifestations of the automaton in history, you are, I think, very convincing in your and you know arguing here for the context specificity of this idea. And, and we'll talk about that in its various manifestations. One of the things that you do that's very really interesting, though, in the course of these chapters 
much much as this first chapter is embracing a very transdisciplinary approach, um, you embrace a very transmedia or sort of multimedia kind of approach in where you're looking for automata. So over the course of the book, we're ranging across fiction pieces, different genres of fiction, um, classical text, history, film, and so on and so forth. You, um, you are arguing that the concept of the automata is very context-specific. So I wonder... Um, how do you feel about um, genre specificity? Is this, in your opinion, a genre-specific mm-hmm. uh, kind of a phenomenon too, or is this something that transcends genre? Um, I would, I would definitely say it's the latter. Um, and uh, you know, I, the interdisciplinary part that you point out is, is very, very important to me because um, I think you know, not just uh, as a scholar through my scholarly conviction, conviction but by instinct. Um, I, I, I am in full rebellion against the extremely specialized nature of uh, academic uh, studies these days. Um, uh, it's, uh, I mean, it has its place. I mean, I, I appreciate it when somebody goes really, really in-depth in, uh, um, in one very uh, small period of history uh, with one approach to history and so on. I, and I, I find that very useful. But um, it's, it's so hard these days to, uh, to find... Uh, Attempts by historians to create these links um, that go, as I said, go beyond uh, go beyond uh, media, go beyond beyond uh, genres, um, and uh, and try to link them uh, also. And um, and you know, I I just mentioned this very briefly, but I think there's a, a real need to uh, perhaps start a another um, another uh, interdisciplinary uh, approach, uh, which I call the history of the imagination. Mm-hmm. Right to get one concept or one idea from one period or more uh, of history, and and see how it spreads all across the culture, um, from scientific texts to philosophical texts to literary texts to uh, you know to popular culture even, and so on, um, and to trace it and and deliberately make a point of making those connections. Um, and, uh, um, and and I think so much would be lost if this trend of extreme specialization our profession is, uh, you know, uh, becomes more and more exaggerated, where we keep producing more and more people who know more and more about less and less. I think that's the sort of the cliche that they use, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, and I, I just, I mean, I, I think uh, the history of imagination would be uh, a push in the other direction, um, which is not to denigrate specialized history in any way, but use those, use those uh, wonderful knowledge that are produced, being produced by specialists as, a, um, um, as, as one among a series of other uh, works to, to make connections. Um, and, uh, um, and it, was, it, was all, it was so much fun for me to say, for instance, um, you know, t- take the uh, 17th century and just scour off, uh, you know, through all of its, uh, you know, writings for the word automaton and to find it appearing in works of science and works of political theory and, uh, um, and works of literature and seeing how they function very similarly. Um, in in all of these different genres, and they point to uh, they point to sort of uh, the common well out of which uh, these ideas come from, and uh, and it's um, and it was a lot of fun, and it's uh, to me it was really interesting, and I I feel that that's been really fruitful. Um, I mean, I, I could have written you know at least uh, uh, an essay just dealing with automaton concept in say medical writings of the second half of the 17th century. That, that would be the kind of advisable thing that, you know, a, a graduate student would write his uh, dissertation on, right? Um, but, uh, but, you know, I, I, but I know that the, that concept that, you know, they, 
um, that came out of the medical field. It spilled over into all these other fields of literature and political theory and so on and so on. And, uh, and it, I mean, it was just too interesting for me not to pursue that, um, even at the risk of uh, being a little bit amateurish as somebody who is, you know, who, who be an interloper. Um, and I mean, you know, then that's, that's the word that's often used uh, when uh, academics try to discourage, uh, you know, other people from going into fields that are not of their expertise. Don't be an interloper. Right? That's right. That's that's right. I'll say, look, let's interlope. Right? Let's interlope. I think this should be a rallying cry for new books in STS. Let's interlope. <laughs> no, I'm I'm completely on board um, with this project. I think one of the, the interesting things that comes up, and then we'll before, before I ask you about the second chapter, is that um, the kind of characterizing the imagination of a culture can involve um, trying to. You need to locate a culture, right? Mm-hmm. And so one when you're looking at the 17th century, you're very careful in this book to say, look, I'm looking at um, something that I'm calling the Western imagination or the European imagination. It it would be very interesting to kind of try to see what happens if you try to take a more um, expansive view and sort of, do do you see what I mean? Sort of, can you talk about imagination more broadly? Is there a kind of circulation of imagination? Can we take this story and go global with it and what happens? And and again, that's another project for another day. But as a China historian, I, yeah. you know, it's something I got to ask. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so okay. So after this chapter, where you're setting up um, this uh, sort of conceptual apparatus with which we can think about how to look for on the mm-hmm. concept of the automaton in these different contexts, and you raise um, a really interesting um, set of concepts, the sublime, um, terror and horror. You talk about um, Freud and the uncanny and Mary Douglas, really, really interesting kinds of um, apparatus here. You take us then into a series of um, very temporally located case studies. And the first case study that we look at is a case study set in medieval and Renaissance periods. So one of um, one of the important things that you address in your discussion of the automaton in medieval and Renaissance Europe is the importance of magic to understanding what's happening here, and, and here magic and its changing instantiations. So mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about this? Because this this will recur as an important point in later periods too. Why is understanding the notion of magic in history so crucial for us to understand the changing nature of the automaton? Right. Um- yeah, I, that, that was one of the areas in which I I, uh, I found it deeply fascinating. I love doing research on it, um, which is that, um, well, the, the word magic I discovered, uh, and and you know what what medieval and Renaissance people thought about magic is, um, I mean, you know, defining the word is virtually impossible because it was such a complicated thing, and there were so many different types of magic that the people talked about, um, and some of the discussion, and and also. Um, also because ma- the word magic could denote a lot of things that, you know, um, that today um, we, we would firmly um, place in the fields of mathematics and, uh, and science, particularly what we would call applied science, uh, which at that time was, you know, regarded as sort of a, a branch of mathematics. I mean, use of mathematical knowledge for, uh, you know, uh, for, you know, again, what we would call technological purposes. Um, and some of the, um, you know, arguments that, uh, raged uh, during the Middle Ages uh, and into the Renaissance was, um, you know, are all magic bad? Um, are, you know, are they all from the devil, or are there some forms of magic that are from the angels, or you know, even directly from God? Um, or um, you know, is there a form of magic that's 
neither good or bad in itself. It's completely neutral. It has to do with, I mean, what they call natural magic, uh, advocated by people like uh, um, William of Auburn or um, later in Renaissance, uh, Cornelius Agrippa. Um, and, uh, um, you know, in other words, these are, these are just knowing how to manipulate the laws of nature. Um, and uh, without dealing in any way with demons or angels, right? Um, is that is that bad or is that good? And you know, um, and there, there, you know, and there were, um, and, the, and there was no consensus position, uh, you know, on, on this whatsoever. Um, you know, there were uh, some theologians who were hardliners who said all magic is bad, right? I mean, it's, it's all either fraud or it's from the devil. Um, and then there were others who say that no, there's some some magic is uh, comes from God, and you know, and the others that are completely neutral. I mean, even I mean. You, you know, you can use natural uh, magic for the purpose of, purpose of good or bad, but um, uh, but in itself, it's not it, it's not good or bad. Um, and uh, um, and the th- and under the category of magic, uh, they placed uh, the uh, you know in ma- in, a, in a many people for many people they place um, especially natural magic the mechanical science of produ- uh, production of wonders. Um, you know uh, that's why in um, uh, Catherine Park and Lorraine Dustin's um, book on uh, on wonders. Uh, Automata appears constantly. I mean, that's that's in the sort of the collection of wonders uh, a lot. Um, and again, you know, I mean, the same discussion: is this idolatry? Is this something evil going on, or is this just com- you know just completely neutral, uh, you know, uh, arrangement of gears and springs and so on? Um, and uh, um, as I said, there was no consensus position, and that's what really made it interesting that these people agonized over it and so on. Um, now, obviously, the most you know the really really spectacular story um, for. Um, the period that you know, really, I you know, I I, uh, I specialized in when I was a graduate student. Uh, in, in during the period of scientific revolution and the Enlightenment, um, they take the this magical object of the automaton um, and completely erase any kind of magical element of it, uh, they, and turn it into a completely natural mechanical object. And they're at pains; these Enlightenment and uh, Enlightenment uh, people are at pains to explain that there is nothing magical going on. And they do something that no magical, uh, no automaton makers uh, uh, before this time period did, which was, you know, what Volcanson did uh, with a flute player, which is um, open up the panel Mm -hmm. and show the people, see, no demons here, (laughs) just gears, just springs, and that's it, right? Um, and to me, that's really, I mean, that, I mean that, so same object, but completely different meaning. It go, you know, it goes from magical to, uh, you know, in, in fact, uh, an anti-magical device, right? I mean, the one that uh, demonstrates the, that, you know, um, in the Cartesian terms, uh, that the world is, in fact, a, you know, a series of dead matter, you know, arranged into a form of machinery. But of course, um, you know, later in the period, especially during the Romantic period, that, that magical aura returns, Mm-hmm. Um, and to the extent that even today um, we can't, I mean, we can't help feeling a little bit creeped out uh, in the face of the automaton that there is something uncanny going on, that there's something uh, even unnatural that occur- uh, that occurs, um, and that feeling that we still possess is. Uh, for me, how the, during the Middle Ages, how they try to articulate their feeling in the language of magic. Um, so the language has changed, but I think the emotional base is something that we still live with. Okay. 
great. Thank you so much. So in this um, introductory chapter, or after this introductory chapter on um, medieval and Renaissance automaton, and you introduce two important cases um, that are really, really interesting. One, this magical speaking head, and another, a list of famous automata in the work of um, particularly uh, Cornelius Agrippa. You take us into a very detailed um, study of Alcanson, who, who you've spoken um, about already, and his three most famous automata, and the context of Alcanson within what you argue should be the golden age of the automata. Now here we have um, not just a sort of moving away from magic and understanding the automaton, but a moving toward um, an understanding of the body um, in terms of a machine. And that, that's not just the human body, but also perhaps um, the body of the state. Can you talk a little bit about that transformation? Yeah, um, you know, it's it's one of the for intellectual historians of the period, say from uh, you know around 1650 to uh, 1750, that century. Um, hey, the, the language of machinery is everywhere. I mean, that's that's sort of you know people just really become obsessed with sort of uh, describing everything in terms of the machinery, um, and it all comes together. I mean, the universe is a big vast machine. Uh, uh, the state is a, a you know big vast machine, or it should be run like a big vast machine. Uh, when a state is functioning badly, it's like a really badly functioning machine. The human body is a machine, uh, machine, machine, machine. I mean, it really it's a really really striking. Um, it is. Um, in fact, um, it was. I mean, one of the easiest things, uh, easiest um, things I had to do during my research is to find instances of the appearance of the word automaton from about you know 1650 to 1750, right? I mean, it's everywhere. It's uh, and uh, um, and it's it's part of what uh, intellectual historians have called you know sort of the uh, disenchantment of the world, um, ousting of all magic, um, and uh, trying to establish. I mean, among the elites, of course, right? Uh, among the intellectual elites, um, and uh, trying to establish uh, a, a new. Um, uh, a, a new certainty because um, you know historian, intellectual historians of the Renaissance, especially the late Renaissance, talk about how um, the Renaissance was a wonderful period of these great you know uh, discoveries and knowledge accumulation and so on. But it was also a time of great anxiety, right? Um, because all these old ideas are you know falling apart. Um, um, then the certainty of the one religion on the Catholic Church is shattered to pieces in the uh, in the Reformation and so on. Um, so at the same time that they were relishing in this creation of this great era of uh, newly discovered knowledge, um, they're also at sea and 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 just you know filled with anxiety about where this is going. Is this is this the beginning of chaos? Is this the beginning of knowing nothing? Um, and the explanation um, for the uh, um, the rise of mechanicism in this period is that. Here you have certainty, right? Um, so the language of uh, mechanics, the language of machinery, is what's going to bring new certainty, right? So don't worry about it. You know things are not going all to chaos, right? We're going to bring all this knowledge together, and um, we'll explain everything. In ter- but in terms of machinery, so we don't need uh, you don't you know um, you don't need like uh, occult forces and, and so on. Um, machines, 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 um, and uh, uh, and it had um, kind of. Uh, an interesting double effect. On the one hand, it it does allay of allay a lot of anxiety for a lot of intellectuals, right? Ah, so this is you know here this is another new basis for stability and certainty and so on. On the other hand, um, it also gives rise to a lot of um, you know what what Foucault might call you know sort of the the, the control of the uh, um, uh, b- the body and the state, um, because once um, you know, once everything becomes uh, mechanical, um, it gives 
power holders a great deal of um, uh, a, a great uh, power holders a great uh, opportunity to use the, those very language uh, in order to establish control. Right, um, and the best example of that is uh, Thomas Hobbes' uh, Leviathan. Right, I mean, in, in in the Leviathan, it's just filled with the language of machinery. Um, you know, in fact, the big Leviathan is a gigantic machine that consists of little machines that are human beings. Uh, and uh, and that's that's really the legacy of uh, of that of that era of mechanicism that uh, we live with. Um, but of course, by the you know second half of the eighteenth century, that all falls apart. Um, vitalism comes back with a uh, you know um, with great strength and uh, and questions you know uh, the entire mechanistic world order. But one of the really interesting things that I think the work raises um, that I hadn't thought about so much before is whether we could even do the same kind of treatment that you're doing for automaton here and look at the idea of a machine, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, sort of how does how does this even change in these different periods what um, what a machine is and, mm-hmm. and how that's understood? So after taking us from um, this period, you look at a context in which. Um, the image of the automaton man is really transformed into something very negative. It's something to talk about humanity's flaws. And this is happening in the context of the emergence of sort of vitalistic ideas. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of vitalism and the sort of the, the discourses of vitalism for creating a new understanding of the automaton in the sort of late 18th um, century? Right. Uh, yeah. Um, in fact, I, I think to me, this is one of the... Um, I mean, of all the things that I, I, I discovered and I and I found, I think this is the one that I that interested interested me the most. Which is, um, I mean, to put it simply, I think the, one of the greatest, um, and when I say greatest, the most influential um, legacy of the Enlightenment, uh, even to our time, is this double notion of what a mechanical man could represent. Um, the sort of the automaton symbolism, which is, uh, which since the time of the Enlightenment, it's just, just you know, uh, that the Western culture has been packed with, right? Um, and it's a paradoxical idea. Um, it's, it's the idea that on the one hand, machine represents power, machine represents stability, machine represents rationality, um, machine represents um, the clarity of understanding. Um, and at the same time, um, by the time you get to the uh, middle of the 18th century, um, uh, the, the political situation in Western Europe deteriorates with a series of wars and, um, and so on. Um, and also, uh, you have the rise of a middle class, uh, rise of literacy, and um, in uh, particular in England and uh, in France, um, and they um, and they're disillusioned with the promise of the mecha- uh, mechanistic age. So, um, and they frankly do feel oppressed by this sort of preponderance of the notions of, of, of machines, which. Um, has been used frequently for, you know, uh, conservative, in some cases, tyrannical purposes. Um, and so there was a sort of really um, anti-authoritarian element to this vitalistic blowback that occurs in the second half of the 18th century, where all of a sudden the mechanical man no longer becomes the rational, in-control, um, you know, powerful, um, you know, mathematical uh you know, um, a man who's part of a rational society, but he becomes everything that the uh, um, that the new generation loathes, right? Um, and that so- somehow, the, you know, in the writings of Rousseau, for instance, uh, the mechanical man is a man with something really vital missing. 
Um, he's he's forgotten how to feel. He's forgotten how to empathize. He's forgotten how to um, really um, comprehend nature intuitively, um, and uh, uh, and cannot use his imagination uh, and so on. Um, and as I said, there's there's a real real um, you know clear anti authoritarian tinge to all of this. Um, now um, I think even today, as I was saying, uh, that notion of the mechanical man as the powerful rational man, right, um, is very much with us um, in the expression that comes from that uh, Bill Murray movie uh, um, uh, ta- uh, God, the, the name of the movie escapes me but there's that there's a phrase mean mean fighting machine right? um, <laughs> and we all you know when, when we when we admire people we all often you know say that that guy is a machine you know I mean it's a, in meaning you know, hard worker uh, you know accuracy at a task you know, and so on but at the same time uh, we often also denigrate people by you know saying that that you know that person's a robot that person's you know uh, uh, that person's an automaton. Um, you know, I, I, especially during uh, uh, during eras of uh, political debate like we're having right now, uh, people often denigrate supporters of the candidate they don't like and say they're a bunch of mindless machines, <laughs> right? Uh, they they don't think for themselves and so on. Um, and I, you know, I locate that exactly in the sea change in the social and political crisis that occur, starts to occur in the middle of the 18th century, and those two images are very much with us. So, I, and one of the really interesting things about this chapter um, as well, and I'll just mention this for listeners, because we don't have like three hours, this is why I'm not asking you to talk so much about particular case studies, but the book, um, I'll say this for listeners, the book is just filled with these wonderfully, wonderfully rich accounts of specific automata throughout history, in addition to these very interesting and very evocative um, contextualizations of, of large periods and large-scale ideas within that history. And so, for example, um, in this chapter, chapter four, um, you give us this really wonderful account of one of perhaps the most famous um, of automata. This is the Turk or um, Baron Wolfgang von Kempelen's chess player um, mm-hmm. that I'm sure uh, many reader, many listeners and many readers of the book will probably have heard something about if they don't know a whole lot about it. Um, you also give us in the next chapter, you talk about another very famous um, monument um, within the, the sort of discourse of uh, men and machines in this this context, especially in the Romantic period, and that's um, Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Okay. So after move and and there are many many others um, like this. So I'll just uh, say this to, to signal to listeners: there's a ton of really wonderful um, case studies and primary sources and, and things in this book that that, that are very evocative. So after moving us through um, the importance of, sort of vitalism and then taking us into the Romantic period um, where the, uh, the sort of the importance of German works of fiction um, comes up and the, the automaton becomes threatening and dangerous um, in a new way, you move us into what you call the Industrial Age. And this is the late 19th and early 20th century. And this is actually really important. And it's very important in particular, perhaps, for people interested in science studies um, and STS because you're showing here um, that the the sort of understanding among other things, the understanding of the automaton, the kind of conceptual work and social work that the idea of the automaton um, is doing is rooted in um, the emergence of very specific ideas including um, thermodynamics and very specific technologies including the steam engine. So can you talk a little bit about um, sort of this context within the cultural responses to the industrial revolution and the steam engine and so forth, so on and so forth for um, the changing significance of the automaton in this period. 
Right. Um, yeah. Uh, the, the, yeah. The, I would love to talk about that. Um, but before I do, can I just want point out one thing? Of right? course uh, you can. About the Turk. About the Turk. Right? Of course you can. So this is the uh, so, so-called Turk or the chess playing machine. Um, I, I just want to point out very briefly before I answer your question oh. that uh, I find it really quite ironic that the uh, the Harvard University Press decided to put on the cover uh, of my book um, illustrations of the uh, of the Turk, uh, the chess playing uh, automaton, right? Uh, because I specifically make the argument that the Turk <laughs> wasn't an automaton. That's right. <laughs> it was a fake automaton. Uh, I mean, the whole. I mean, what, look. Uh, the thing is, I mean, to defend von Kempelen's uh, reputation, um, he's all, all often been called a fraud, and the the machine was a hoax, and so on. But he actually never claimed that this was uh, an actual chess playing machine. Um, and uh, um, and I I think um, you know one has to respect the people of the time period, uh, you know, and not think that, you know, uh, people were actually fooled into, you know, and because, you know, this is the 18th century. I mean, you know, there weren't, any, uh, there weren't that many people who were stupid enough to believe that somebody actually made a chess playing machine. Uh, and for von Kempelen, this was always a dare, right? I mean, I, you know, you, you know that I know, and you know that this is, this is some kind of a trick, but you figure it out, right? Um, and there, there was, a, uh, there was an instinct. Uh, so that was, that, I mean, to me, that was worth exploring. So how, the, uh, what that meant, uh, but it, it actually was an automaton in the sense that, um, you know, one what, what of my sort of baseline definition of automaton is a self-moving machine. Right? If something else is moving it, it's not an automaton, right? It has to have the uh, devices and power necessary to move itself, right? Um, and as, you know, people will read, uh, you know, this wasn't self-moving. Right? It was moved by somebody else, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, anyway, so I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, um, on your question about uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the role of the automaton in the, in the, in the industrial age, um, I found it really interesting um, that um, when the industrial revolution broke out, there were two initially there were two main responses that you could have. Uh, one is sort of the more what I call technophile position that says, you know, uh, machines are going to save us all this work and it's going to create a world and, you know, um, industri- industry will, you know, uh, create a great economy and so on. Um, so the celebration of the industrial age. And then you had the romantic reaction, right? Um, William Blake, you know, calling the, uh, uh, the factories the dark satanic mills and so on, right? Um, and so, you know, so they you go back and forth. And this is a very familiar topic for people who have done any kind of uh, cultural study of the industrial age. Uh, you know, people are agonizing over, you know, is this good, is this bad, or, you know, what, what are the good and bad? And, um, you know, uh, re, uh, on the one hand, this great push toward the industrialization, on the other hand, sort of the Luddite reaction and so on. Um, but then, you know, once uh, modernism, modernist culture is born, um, I just gotten really, really fascinated with this sort of new view of this um, that goes beyond either the sort of the classical celebration of industry versus uh, and the um, and the romantic um, fear of it, which is that. Um, starting in, you know, from the, say, the 1880s and so on, you know, beginning of modernist art, modernist literature, and modernist uh, philosophy and so on, uh, I keep coming across these absolutely fascinating descriptions of the machines of the industrial age um, as a kind of a new living creature, a new living being. 
um, in, in that they are no longer these utilitarian devices that the classical technophiles uh, envisioned them. Uh, nor, nor is this sort of this monstru- monstrous um, outbreak of the artificial that the romantics envisioned, but you know, beings that are that have their own, their own nature um, and that are very, very mysterious, um, and they're very different from human beings and. Uh, and then there's a whole question is what is our relationship to be uh, with these machines? Um, and that runs a gamut from um, uh, somebody like uh, um, Samuel Butler thinking that they're the next step in evolution uh, and that probably there's going to be a violent confrontation between human beings and machines to, um, to later, you know, Italian futurists like Marinetti celebrating them, uh, celebrating the, these new, brand new creatures and that, now, the future of humanity lies in our merging with these living, uh, living creatures. Um, and to, to me, I, I think that says something very, very, very vital about modernist culture and how it is different from, you know, both the classical and the romantic uh, cultures of the, uh, of, of the earlier 19th century. Um, and, uh, um, and this notion of, the, of machines as organic living beings, um, uh, which I find everywhere. I mean, I, you know, everywhere in modernist writings. Um, I think that's, uh, you know, what one could with some exaggeration said that is at the heart of, 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 of the uh, modernist outlook on, uh, on the world. Thank you so much. And this is um, this chapter also, I want to just point out, has some really fantastic examples in it. And so I, I won't ask you to describe this, but I'll leave it as a surprise for our listeners. In particular, there's a story um, by Alfred Jarry called Super Mail. Oh, right. <laughs> I particularly recommend. Really, really funny. Um, it's um, so, yeah, this is just to say that there are some wonderful stories in here um, that anybody who's interested in the history of literature as well um, is going to find new things in here that they may not have known about. Okay, so after you take us into, and in the process of transferring or transitioning from the industrial age to the revolt of the robots and beyond, one of the things that um, becomes uh, interesting in a new way, although this is present from the very beginning of the book, is the emergence of or the, the recurrence, perhaps, is better, um, a better way to talk about it, of the notion of servitude being mm-hmm. central, right? The idea of servitude in, in terms of understanding the relationship between automata, machines, and humanity. Now, the importance of servitude to the way automata have, have been understood throughout history is actually present from the very first chapter of the book, and it um, arises here in an important way in part because as you introduce in the um, seventh chapter of the book the uh, the emergence of robots, right, the term robot, this is very much um, of a piece with the discourse of servitude. So can you talk a little bit about, about that? Because that actually seems to be one of the themes that also traces this entire really wonderful diagram chronic history of um, automaton as a concept and as an object for us, servitude, that why is that important and in what ways does that shape what's happening, especially in the later part of this history? Right. Um, you know, um, all throughout uh, early modern and modern era, um, you can, 
Uh, I mean, even earlier, I mean, you can uh, see sort of the linkage between um, sort of the notion of mechanized humanity with servitude. Um, and uh, it goes even back all the way to Aristotle. And this is, I mean, uh, this is a really interesting uh, section in Aristotle's politics where um, he he starts talking about um, the old legend of uh, Daedalus and how he created his moving statues. And, uh, um, and then, um, you know, and this really kind of very interesting leap forward in uh, Aristotle imagination, he says, uh, you know, wait a minute, if we really had those things, you know, we wouldn't need slaves anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was astounding. I mean, it's just really, I mean, it's almost like, you know, there's, it's just this great, uh, imagine leap forward in terms of, uh, and he said, like, you know, uh, in, in fact, we could have all these machines that would do all these things for us instead of having, having slaves. Um, so the notion of, you know, uh, slavery, servitude, um, and uh, mechanical being that's been there all along and um, as potential, right? Um, and also one could, like, you know, say, read uh, Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan and said that, you know, the, the very mechanistic image of hum- humanity, um, there's, there's some issues of servitude involved in there. Um, but what I see is that these themes that have been always there, I think, um, but not really fully blown. I mean, the, the potential to explore the notion of mechanized humanity as a symbol of, uh, you know, human servitude has been there. But... Uh, it's in the period after World War One that that theme just completely blows up, um, and that becomes, I would say, one of the one of the main themes of the automaton concept uh, during the interwar period. Um, and uh, uh, and you know, and and again, that's everywhere. That's everywhere in uh, in cinema and in, uh, in drama and fiction um, of uh, of the interwar period. And, uh, and I think there's numbers of things that are involved in this. Um, you know, one is uh, sort of the continue, continuing um, uh, progress of the Industrial Revolution, because you see this sort of, you know, mechanized humanity as, uh, as, uh, um, as a symbol of human servitude um, in, in the writings of Marx um, and a lot of commentators on the Industrial Revolution. Um, but um, what, what occurs um, in the earlier 20th century is the agonizing debate among Europeans whether to adopt the, um, the Taylorist regime in the European factories or not. Um, because on the one hand, it promises you know ever greater efficiency, but on the other hand, um, I mean, the, I mean, just just the idea of uh, of a guy standing over your shoulder with a stopwatch, I mean, and just measuring you know how fast you do things and so on. I mean, it was just horrendously odious to uh, uh, to the working class. Um, but in the course of the war, I mean, you do have much you know sort of general uh, adoption of those things, and so there's a sense that you know in the factory situation. Uh, you know, uh, people have been further dehumanized in a mecha- uh, mechanistic way, and the uh, and the experience of World War One, the high tech warfare, um, you know, fighting against machines and fighting against machine guns, and you know, uh, and just the absolutely devastating effect of it. Um, and there's all these writings of uh, World War One veterans um, in France, and you know, just like um, um, in, in Remark in Germany uh, and Barbus in, Fran- uh, Barbus in France, uh, who constantly evoke the uh, uh, the language of the automata, uh, language of the mechanist, mechanistic being, to describe uh, what uh, what 
the soldier at the front on uh, these battlefields had been reduced to. I mean, this constant description of broken machinery trudging through the, uh, you know, uh, the burned out landscape and so on. Um, and, uh, um, and also, in addition to this, um, there's sort of the lingering feel about the success of the Bolshevik revolution in Russia, right? Um, and the uh, attempts there to try to create a uh, high-tech utopia. Um, and, uh, and sort of a cons- uh, sort of those, you know, for a lot of people on the left, some hopes that that could lead to something and a lot of people on the, uh, you know, who, who, are, who are critical of it, um, thinking that this is, uh, it is they're, they are in the process of creating a mechanized dystopia, um, and uh, and all of those things factors come together, um, and so um, I, I think, and, and you know, as I said, I think the uh, the linkage between mechanized human humanity and servitude has been there for a long time, it's as, as potential, but it's really in the late industrial period and particularly after World War One that it becomes a central theme. I mean, you, you cannot escape that theme. Um, you know, when you when you observe the uh, uh, automata, how the automaton idea was used during the interwar period. Thank you. Now, before we bring this to a close, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I just wanted to ask you one final thing um, before mm. before we wrap up. Yes. So the conclusion of the book brings the story to a close by looking at some of the ways that the automaton functions in contemporary culture, so modern culture. Where are we now um, in terms of our cult- our own cultural appropriation at this moment of the automaton? Oh, um, you know, we are we're still. I mean, all of these issues are very, um, uh, uh, you know, um, very much with us. Um, not, none of these issues have been resolved, and um, we are still very, very, very much. Uh, I mean, as you saw in my book, I, I use a, um, a lot of recent appearance of the word robot and automata, um, in you know, to describe certain kinds of people and so on. I mean, you know, in the last couple of years and so on, uh, they're very much with us, uh, which tells me that uh, Western culture still finds the robot and automatons symbolism a very very fruitful fruitful one and useful one um and uh, uh, one of the things that I've been thinking about, and I've been having conversations with people in cinema studies uh, recently about this, um, is that I've been co- uh, making very long lists of uh, all the uh, movies that Hollywood had produced in the 1980s and 90s uh, that has robots in it. And uh, um, and I what I just sort of generally see is that uh, in the in, from the mid to late night uh, late 1980s, there's this huge upsurge of production of movies involving dangerous robots, um, and the most famous of them being Terminator. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you enter into the 90s, and all of a sudden, there's this preponderance of movies with very nice robots. Right, uh, like AI, uh, artificial intelligence, and uh, uh, short circuit, and so on. Helpful robots. Um, you know, the the evil robot in the first Terminator becomes a helpful robot in the second in the sequel. The evil robot in the first Alien movie, um, and you know, becomes a good robot in the second Alien movie, and so on. Um, and uh, so, from about I think uh, you know eighty nine to about ninety five, ninety six, this is sort of switch. You know, it's, it's in the era of uh, positive robots. And then the awful robot comes back in the late nineties, mm-hmm. um, and uh, um, and the best you know best example of that is the Matrix mo- Matrix movies, right? Um, and at that time, all the nice guy ro- uh, nice robot movies that come out in the second half of the nineties completely fail at the box office. Nobody's interested in them, right? Um, and uh, uh, and again, and in the last couple of years, starting with. Um, 
um, starting with Wally, um, I see sort of a return of the good robot, and uh, um, and I'm trying to wrap my mind around this is this is completely at a, at an early stage of my thought about this, but I think the 1980s feel of the robot has something to do with uh, the beginning of the uh, personal computer revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, that all of a sudden, almost everybody had to just handle this technology, and there, there are all these fears about: Can I do this? How, what, you know, what's what, what, you know, what are the sort of the great um, you know um, benefits and also the great disadvantages of it? Um, but by the time we get to the nineties, uh, people find that it's kind of easy, and not only that, it's very, very, uh, it's it's quite indispensable. Everybody needs computers now, right? So your machine becomes your friend. The machine that you know, who's which, you know, which is in your house, which is in your office, and which you carry around, and so on. Um, by the time you get to the 90, uh, mid nineties, um, the computer becomes a source. Not, you know, not only have we forgotten all the benefits, we feel that we are chained to the computer, that it's dehumanizing us, <laughs> taking us from nature, and it's also a source of danger. This is where predators are going after your children. This is where viruses are going to come out, uh, come in, and wipe out all your data. Uh, and and so on and so the danger feeling of danger comes back and um, and so I, I think uh, one could try uh, you know one could you know uh, I, I give some thought about this sort of changes in the uh, in the preponderance of the bad robot versus good robot uh, in the context of what's going on historically around that period. Great. Well, Mintsu, thank you so much for making the time to talk with us. Now, there's a ton in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Uh-huh. Um, as we wrap up, is there anything else about the book um, specifically that we didn't cover, but that you'd like to point out for listeners who may not yet have had an t- opportunity to read it? Um, yeah, um, you know, there, there's um, obviously for, um, you know, for the purpose of the length, there's a lot of stuff that I had to leave out that I couldn't really explore properly. Right? Um, and, uh, and I, you know, as I say in the introduction, I'm hoping that this whole book will be... Um, uh, will inspire other uh, other scholars. Uh, you know, as I said, I you know I have nothing but respect for people who are specialists, um, and uh, hopefully specialists could pick up on a lot of stuff that I wrote and write entire books on each of the period that I talked about in different fields. Um, and uh, uh, one of the areas that I myself would like to explore further, and then I'm planning to do uh, to do this, is that. Um, there were so many things that's related to gender that I just could not deal with properly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, th- there's a famous essay by uh, Andreas Huizen about uh, about Metropolis, where he makes a very gender-centered argument about the female robot in uh, in, in Metropolis. Um, and unfortunately, um, you know, in this one sort of very short three or four page. Um, a section of his essay, which deals with uh, which which in which he tries to deal with the history of automata, um, uh, he makes a series of ahistorical uh, arguments that I found to be not quite uh, there um, because he he tries to see the same notion of gender um, uh, and projected in the pre-modernist period, um, and I, which I just don't think is there. And he's uh, um, but uh, but you know he, he makes his argument that there, there's a you know part of modernist culture is there's this um, spiking off the fear of female sexuality and he links it to also the fear of machinery and the fear of masses fear of mass movement um, and uh, and sort of the and all three things are sort of I mean in his point of view all mixed up in the modernist imagination that's why so often female sexuality does become represented in, in terms of the danger of the machinery. Machine, and that's in turn also represented in the danger, potential danger of people going out of control.
control, the masses going out of control, and so on. Um, now, I, um, I, you know, to me, that's very, very modernist. I mean, I, I, I see only inklings of that, but not, not in ma- major ways in eras before. Um, and you know, and I talk about this uh, article in the book, but uh, his uh, his essay in my book. Um, and uh, I, in the future, I, I do plan to look more deep. Uh, you know, um, get myself, you know, better familiar with um, more recent, uh, you know. Um, uh, uh, gender theory and try to apply this, that, um, these ideas to Ottomans and theory because there's lots of uh, ideas. Um, in particular, I'm in the process right now of collecting all the stories that I can find from ancient times to today um, of a what I regard as, as, a, as a really uh, ingrained myth. Um, and uh, it involves a story about a man who, for one reason or another, is unhappy with natural women. Right, um, can't stand women, you know. Uh, but he needs them, but can't stand them. Right. Um, so the solution is to build a robot woman. Right? Uh, now, this is a story. Is I mean, this story has been told so many times. It's it's a veritable, uh, you know, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, obsession in the Western tradition. Um, and uh, um, and I, you know, I deal with one major example of that, which is Villiers de la Dame's novel, uh, The Future Eve. Um, but uh, that's just one of like dozens and dozens that I've been able to find so far. Um, and uh, you know, um, when scholars have dealt with it, especially um, you know, uh, feminist scholars have dealt with these ideas. They've they've said fairly predictable things about what you know uh, such stories means, which is sort of the sort of the worst of the sexist and mis- misogynistic fantasy about you know being able to con- you know again the theme of subservience, right? Being able to control the woman, custom make the woman, and so on and so on. Right? Um, but what I think they had missed that, and this is the issue that I really like to explore further. Um, is that if you look at every single one of those stories, something always goes terribly wrong at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it it never ends with a man be living happily ever after with his robot wife. It it's something usually something really catastrophic goes at the end. Um, you know, the robot rebels, um, and in sort of the more benign cases, the man succeeds, but then realizes. No, this is really boring. This is not what I wanted all along, right? Uh, and uh, and there's all kinds of variation. But it's um, I'm, I'm not saying that you know people who wrote those stories uh, were you know I mean well you know uh, secret feminists or just you know <laughs> I'm not saying they're all. A lot of them I know for a fact were real sexist and misogynist. But um, I think even they are admitting that this fantasy doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it it just it just doesn't work. I mean, it's uh, it may seem like a solution, but it's at the end of the day, it's it's not it's not something that will satisfy this man's desire. And I, I you know, and that's that's one of the one of the aspects of this sort of the gender aspects of the automaton idea that I plan to explore in the future. Great. So, what's next for you? What project is inspiring you right now? Is that um, is that gendered aspect of the automata something that you're actively working on, or if not, what's um, what's taking your attention and your time right now? Oh yes, uh, you know, well, well, the, uh, the the gender aspect that yeah, that's that's in the future, and I'm I'm slowly collecting data for that uh, to get into fully. Um, but uh, as is my want. <laughs> Uh, time to take a break from all of this. Um, so what I'm working on right now is uh, um, is a book of Korean history. Oh, excellent! Yeah, um, and uh, what I'm particular uh, in particular writing about is a um, th- there's a um, literary figure by the name of Hong Gil Dong, 
and uh, he's the Robin Hood of Korea. I mean, oh, that's the way he's described, and uh, it's 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 not a very good description. Um, uh, but you know, today, as by complete coincidence, I am mourning the passing of Eric Hobsbawm, mm-hmm. uh, who died today, um, and whose work uh, whose works I've been a great admirer for a very long time. And uh, um, when I was an undergrad, um, I took a, a course on cultural history, and I read his book uh, Bandits. And uh, um, and he describes uh, sort of the legendary figure of the noble robber, and he gives you know many different characteristics of it. You know, he writes wrongs. Um, you know, he takes from the rich and gives to the poor. He's invincible, and so on and so on. Right? Um, and obviously, you know, I mean, you know, it's Robin Hood. But I remember as an undergrad, I was you know this 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 guy's Hong Gil Dong. I mean, this is the, this is the hero that I grew up with when I was a little kid. Right? Um, and uh, so I was gonna do a fairly small project where I was gonna do a you know, a new translation because, for you know, fairly technical reasons, the translation that is, is exists uh, right now, it's not. Um, I find it unsatisfactory. Um, and do a little, uh, you know, a, a longish essay introducing the figure of Hong Gil Tong to uh, to Western audiences. Um, and I, I imagine something like you know, a penguin penguin classic kind of you know situation. Right? Uh, but then I discovered, uh, you know, as I got into it, um, and I, I completed a translation, and most of the book is written. Uh, I just stepped on a scholarly landmine because um, uh, apparently everything that like uh, most vast majority of Koreans have believed about the nature of this text uh, apparently is wrong because most Koreans will tell you that this is the very first work of fiction uh, written in the native Korean phonetic script, the Hangul, which was invented by King Sejong in the 14th century. Uh, it's probably not the case. Um, and most Koreans believe that this was written by the statesman and poet Hogyun in the 17th century. That is highly improbable and obvious. Uh, and it's, uh, and it's, um, it's probably a work of an anonymous writer sometime during the 19th century. Um, but I, you know, but so I'm dealing with all of those issues and it's, uh, it's a fascinating, uh, a fascination. Um, uh, for people in, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, Chinese studies, um, the comparable example would be the great epic novel, uh, Water Margin. Mm-hmm. Um, except that, you know, uh, Hong Gil Tong is just one guy. There's no, there's no 150 characters. And <laughs> you don't have to slog your way through 3,000 pages. <laughs> Um, but the, but one of the legends is that um, you know um, the the guy who supposedly wrote it, Hokkien, um, he enjoyed Water Margin so much that he wanted to write a Korean version of it. Right? Um, that is, I dispute that. I I I, I don't think that's the case. Um, that in fact, other than the fact that it's a story about righteous bandits, uh, there's very little resemblance between uh, Hong Gil Tong and the uh, and any of the heroes of Water Margin. But uh, but you know, I sort of you know, so I am. Um, so I'm, so I, it's a it's a nice break for me. It's a really fun project, and uh, uh, the big challenge for me is to um, and, and it's a different kind of challenge from the challenge of writing the automaton book. The cha- the really big challenge for me is that um, to make this a really interesting topic for Western readers who know nothing about Hong Gil Dong, right? Other than the fact that he's kind of a Korean Robin Hood. <laughs> Um, so the full translation is going to be there, and uh, you know, it, you know, my what I plan to be a longish introduction turned into an entire book of four different chapters. Um, 
dealing in, um, also with um, sort of modern manifestations of this figure and so on. Um, and, uh, um, and it's a lot of fun. I'm having a tremendous amount of fun doing it. Well, that sounds fantastic, too. So when that's out, let me know, and we'll talk for new books in East Asian Studies. I definitely will. <laughs> well, Vincy, thank you so much. Um, it's really been a pleasure, and um, congratulations, and best of luck with your new project. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.